We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study, where it was delivered for university students. When Paul left Jerusalem, he was travelling towards Damascus, and his mission was to bring the followers of the way as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He describes it in verses 4 and 5, I persecuted the followers of, the, of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And he talks about going to Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. For he went from one synagogue to another, verse 19, to imprison and beat those who believed in the Lord Jesus. But now the wheel has turned a full circle. For now he has come back to Jerusalem now here he is, not a persecutor of the, of, of the followers of the way, but one himself who is a follower of the way, a believer in Jesus. And now instead of persecuting, he is persecuted. Now instead of putting people in chains, he himself is in chains, stretched out to be flogged. He'd come a long way in the last 15 or 20 years. He left in order to exterminate and he came back and faced his own extermination. As a young man he had stood holding the coats while his seniors stoned Stephen into the silence of death. Verse 20 And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Notice how it says your martyr Stephen the word here is the word witness, your witness, Stephen. But the witnesses in Christianity nearly all died for their witness and so the word witness slipped into, evolved into the word martyr. He was their martyr because he bore witness to them. He was their martyr because he died for them in Jerusalem. But he was also their martyr because he was like them, a faithful Jew and also a Christian. Notice the charge that's levelled against Stephen. It's back there in chapter 6 of Acts. Acts chapter 6. Uh, do turn it up with me, will you? Acts chapter 6. And uh, verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. The charge against Stephen was that he was preaching against the holy place, that is the temple, and against the customs of Moses, the law. For we have heard, verse 14, him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs of Moses handed down to us, that is the law. Now come back to Acts 21, Acts 21, where Paul is accused and what is he accused of in Acts 21 verse 28? Acts 21 28. Men of Israel, help us. This man, that's Paul, who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. The very charges that were levelled against Stephen are now levelled against Paul. The very charges for which Paul shared in the murder of Stephen, that is that he was speaking against the temple and Moses, he is now charged of speaking against, 
the temple and Moses. There was the charge. And it was just because he was guilty, he was one of them in the killing of Stephen, that Paul expected Jerusalem to listen to him. But the Lord had told him in a vision, chapter 22, verse 18, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. It's a funny thing that when people become Christians, they often think I must go home and tell the folks at home about it. And they should, and that's a good and right thing. But you always expect the people at home will believe me because I was one of them, they know me. But the Lord Jesus himself taught us that a prophet is without honour in his home country, in his hometown. It is the people at home who would not listen to Paul. And the Lord knows they will not listen to him. And so in verse 21, the Lord said to him, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And at that point, when Paul recounts that, Jesus' words of prophecies come exactly true. The roof falls in, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. And so they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And Paul had to be rescued by the Romans. It's that statement that sparks them off. It's the statement about the Gentiles. I will send you to the Gentiles that makes the crowd go berserk. The word Gentile does it. For this is the issue that now puts Paul in chains. He's not stoned like Stephen because he's rescued by the Gentiles. Rescued by the Romans and by his Roman citizenship. Sorry about the microphone going off and on. That's just a character of life. I'll try and hang on to it. I can only speak half as fast with one hand. Now, this chapter opens up for us the whole issue of religious persecution. It's a common and an all too human and an all too unattractive response and reaction to religion is the whole notion of persecution. For persecution is an attempt to destroy the offending religion. And I'm talking here of purely religious persecution, not the kind of stuff that gets junked up with politics and economics and, and all that kind of thing. I mean, the war in Ireland, the war in uh, Iran-Iraq war, the, the war in Israel, there are religious elements to it, but it really has got to do with socio-economic, who owns the land, who owns the control of the government and all those kinds of issues as well, and religion is often a very small and insignificant part of it. It's interesting that in Ireland the religious groups are praying like mad for peace and disassociating themselves from either the Orange or the IRA as the religious people, the ones who really care about Christianity, tend to be living in much greater harmony than either the IRA or the Orange people. Now that's an oversimplification, but I'm just saying, I'm not talking about that kind of mixed up religious persecution. I'm talking about the religious persecution that says, if you believe this, then I'm going to execute you. I'm going to remove you. If you start preaching and teaching yoga, if you start practicing Islam, if, you start, if you're practicing Judaism, I'm going to execute you, I'm going to put you in prison, I'm going to lock you up for no other reason than your religion. That kind of religious persecution is what I'm thinking about now. And people do try and destroy alternative religions. It's, it's happening around the world, it's happened down through history, and it's happening now. There are all kinds of countries which missionaries are not allowed into. 
why? Why can't you have someone come and tell you about what they believe and try and persuade you to their belief? Why do you have to exclude them just because they want to teach you about their God? But there are all kinds of countries where that's not allowed. That's just sheer religious persecution. They're not, they're not kept out because of their race, because of their economics, because of their culture. They're kept out because they want to propagate a religion. Now why is it that people do this? I've got no Bible answer particularly that I can think of, so I'll get your answers so we can share in the knowledge together. Why do you think that people persecute religions and religious people? What is it that makes a society, a culture, a person, a family persecute? Insecurity? That was my number two. They're redneck racists, just to coin a phrase. Yeah. That's partly what I wanted to say in number one of my list anyway. But I'll hear some more ideas and we'll get some. Hmm? What else? I think they're wrong, yes, that's my, uh, that is the people who persecute nearly always think they are right, that the redneck racist, it's, and the others are wrong. It's got to do with a commitment to an absolute. We're right, they're wrong. But they're insecure, fearful. Any other reasons? Yep. Yeah, it's all tied in with their culture, their way of life. That is, I take it that they also persecute because the issues are fundamental to their culture. See, if someone comes into our culture and says, you should stop playing golf with white golf balls and you should start playing with green golf balls. Well, I don't care that much about golf. It doesn't matter to me. If I'm not allowed to use a white golf ball, I'll use a green golf ball. I'll get lost in the grass, but that's all right, I'll paint, plant orange grass. I mean, it's no big deal. So we play with a different coloured ball. I mean, that's, that's a nothing because it's not that important to me. But when you bring in a new religion, you actually bring in something that affects the very culture itself and says the way in which you conduct marriage and family life, the food you eat, the way you work, the reason for living, the purpose of everything that you are doing, all that has to now change. And, well, that actually is dealing with things that matter to me suddenly. Now, of course... Why I persecute, though, I think very often has got to do with insecurity. For if they come and say, look, you've got to use green golf balls, I say, that's a stupid thing, you'll get lost in the grass. White golf balls, much better. Yellow golf balls, much better. It's easy to see them. And so I can answer with reason, because there's, but if they bring in something which I've got no reasonable answer to, but I don't want it, it's wrong, and it's asking me to change a lot, I can't use reason to respond, so I turn to other things. And when I see my children turning and becoming members of this new, I'll call it a cult, because if a cult is always what the other person believes, when I see my children becoming members of that cult, then I want that cult banned from our society, and I want their literature destroyed and their leaders put in jail, because my family, my life, my future, my, my empire is being attacked. It's those kinds of things that have led people around the world to keep persecuting. See, there are countries in this world where you're not allowed to print Bibles or sell them. There are countries in the world today where you're not allowed to baptise people, except for children of Christians, but you're not allowed to baptise a Muslim or a Hindu. And if you do, you'll be put in prison. There are countries in this world today when you are baptised, if it is found out, you are executed. 
Now, that's mainly in the, in the Islamic countries, though not exclusively. But they and the communists don't have a monopoly on religious persecution. I mean, multicultural, multiracial Singapore, the most tolerant of societies, really is at the moment looking at enacting legislation against Christians because there has been a steady rise in Christian proselytism. There's been a steady rise in Christians amongst the professions such that the balance of the racial groups is being changed and with the change in the balance of the racial groups comes new threat and fear by the non-Christian parts of the Singaporean society who are pressing Lee Kuan Yew to change the laws to stop proselytism taking place to prevent people becoming Christians. And there is no one, of course, who is as fierce a persecutor as the little L liberal. But it's not just them either. Christianity has it in its various forms. I'm not a Roman Catholic, never have been one, and plan never to become one either. But in the name of Christ, they have, undergot, they have undertaken the most hideous of all persecutions in a long centuries of the thing called the Inquisition. And the fact that it's done in the name of Christ makes my head, even though I'm not a Roman Catholic, hang in shame that people in the name of Christ should be tortured, should be put on the rack, should be pilloried, should be killed, should be burnt at the stake, should be... But what has been done in the name of Christ by a group that I disagree with but still in the name of Christ is dreadful. The Greek Orthodox Church is still actively hostile to any proselytism within Greece and has put people in prison for seeing people turn aside from orthodoxy because of their belief in the gospel. But it's not just overseas out there or back in history, it's, it's here in Australia as well. It's here within this room as well. You see, there are all kinds of groups like we call cults. Now take, for example, the Moonies. I don't have any love for the Moonies. I think the Moonies, I mean, personally I do, but not for the Mooney religion. Uh, the, the, the religion itself is an awful religion. I think, it is a, I think it is a brainwashing religion. I think it is a cult that is very unfair on people. I think its theology is stupid, and it is anything but Christian. But they have a right to preach it here in Australia. They have every right to preach it, in my view. For how will I know the truth is not in the Mooney religion if the Mooney religion is actually censored off our world, off our country, off our campus? Well, how can I be sure that the truth is in Jesus Christ if I'm never allowed to hear what the alternatives are? Now, it's important that they have the right to speak. And, of course, it is the, again, little liberals in the students' union who want to keep the Moonies off the campus, who want to actively participate in in censorship and religious persecution and Christians sometimes get caught up and think, yeah, well, I don't like them either, we should get rid of them. I say, no, no, I'm all for them being here, although I dislike them intensely, for that is not the way to deal with error. But the, the group that is actually the most cultic in our community, the group that actually manipulates people, the group that refuses to allow for reason to take affair in religious matters, the group that that uses force to coerce people more than any other group of the society around about us is the family. For when the adult children of families decide to change religion, you will see manipulative uh, uh, processes take place, psychologically manipulative processes, economic processes take place, which really put the moonies in the shade. Yet no one actually wants to stamp out families because they use practices that are less than straightforward and honest and reasonable. It's the character of the life that when our community is attacked, they answer back with the destruction. But destruction's not the only way. There are other reactions to, to other religions. 
The one that everyone wants and subscribes to but we all find very difficult is reason. You look at the issues dispassionately. These people have come teaching that there are many gods. I've always grown up believing there is one God. What's the evidence for many gods? What's the evidence for one God? What's the evidence against one God? What's the evidence against many gods? Let me weigh up the reasons and make a choice as to what is the most reasonable. That is the way that we should be operating because then we'll be fully persuaded of the truth of what we believe. And when you're fully persuaded of the truth of what you believe, you are no longer threatened by an alternative because you know what you believe and why you believe and why you don't believe that and therefore why it's no threat to you. Being reasonable is a, a positive reaction but it's a very difficult one, friends, because we're all caught up with our own biases and bigotedness, our own racial backgrounds and family community attitudes, etc. And so it's a hard thing to do. Another alternative is acceptance. Uh, this is the very popular one these days, the relativist one, where you say, okay, well, you believe what you like and I'll believe what I like and that's your choice. I'm just saying that's your choice for you and my choice for me is different. And, and the majority like this because it makes them feel secure because what they're doing is treating all religions as a matter of indifference. It's just like the colour of golf balls. It really doesn't matter. And that's because we really don't have any fundamental view of life which is threatened by any other religion. And so we just remain remote and free from it until our children join up with the Moonies. Then I've noticed that when their children become Hare Krishnas and come home one day bald and wearing orange, suddenly the most accepting of parents suddenly turn and tell you what they really think. And there's of course another reaction, that is to change. To say, well, this new religion's actually right and my old religion's wrong. I'm going to give up the old way of thinking and living and I'm going to start living the new way. Now that is the, they are the kinds of reactions you see to any threatening new religion, new culture. Let me try and take it from a, a neutral subject, an external subject to this religion to see that that's how it works. See, I know a man who's a man and woman who came to see me because their 16-year-old daughter was running away with a 35-year-old married man. The parents themselves were only in their mid-30s and so she was running away with a man old enough to be her father who himself was married and had three children. And these parents were very distressed. Now, they weren't Christians. No one in the whole thing was Christian. They were just looking for help from anywhere and would come to me some years ago, this was. But you've got four choices, haven't you? When that happens, you think about it. You're the father, you're the mother of a 16-year-old who's doing that. What would you do? You can go for destruction. Right? You, you cut the daughter off. You say, that's it. You're left the family. You go with him. You're not my daughter anymore. Got nothing to do with it. Well, there's another destructive process too, isn't there? That is, you go out and get a gun and shoot the bloke. Right? That stops the problem. Creates others. But you see, you've destroyed the threat to your family, haven't you? There's a second alternative. That's to sit down and reason and, and, and talk to the man and say, look, your responsibility is your own children and your wife. Talk to the girl, look how stupid he is. You're marrying a man who's that much older than you. Can you imagine what it's going to be like down the track when he's 60 and you're 40? Can you see what you're doing to his wife and children? Can you see what he's going to do when he gets sick and tired of you and moves on to the next one? Can you? And you try and reason the issue through. And of course, in the process of reasoning, she might persuade you that she's doing the right thing going off with this man, that this is exactly the right thing because reason can go either way, can't it, if it's going to be reasoning. Or you can accept it. You can say, oh, well, it's not the kind of thing we did when we were 16, but, you know, it's a new age, life's changing a lot, and 
and if, if, if it makes her happy, anything that makes her happy, I'm happy. I know it's making other people unhappy, but then again, he wasn't much of a husband anyway, was he? Because look what he did, he ran away with a 16-year-old. So it's the married wife, she's happy to lose him too, really, deep down. She just doesn't know it yet. And so everybody's really happy with it, and we just accept it. That's a possible reaction as well, isn't it? Or, or there's the other reaction of changing, which says, well, we didn't do it when we were 16, but they're doing it these days. In fact, it sounds such a good idea, I might go and find a 16-year-old myself and see if I can go away with them. And so we can all do it. And so this is the new age and the new culture. See, there are the ways you can react to the threat that comes to you, the threat to your little culture. Well, what's happening here? What's the threat that we're talking about in Acts 22? Let's get back to that. The Jews of the first century were a very threatened and insecure people. There was widespread corruption within them and there were internal divisions and party factions and fights. They were at this point in history inching their way towards the great war that would destroy them and scatter them. In 66 AD they declared war against Rome. They were totally annihilated, as you would expect, Israel against Rome. 70 AD, Jerusalem was flattened and they didn't reoccupy the land until 1948 when the British gave it to them. Uh, a judgment that we can go into another day. But this was the war that destroyed Israel. We're talking about 60 AD here, something like 59 AD, so they're just a few years off the war and it's all fermenting, it's all just about to happen and they are very insecure. The threat to Judaism was not Rome though, the threat to Judaism actually was Jesus and they were losing sight of this at the time. You see, when Jesus was alive, they knew he was the threat. That's why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they all got together to kill him. Shortly after his death, they still knew he was the threat because his disciples started going around proclaiming that he was alive again. His disciples proclaimed that he was the Messiah and thousands of Jews joined them. That was the time of Stephen's death, 15, 20 years, 30 years earlier. That was the time when Paul was persecuting with zeal because he saw the threat to Judaism as he knew it was Jesus and his followers, the followers of the way. But the threat was not really Jewish Christians at the time of Acts 22. For as more Jews in Jerusalem became Christians, so in a sense there came to be a reconciliation and an acceptance of Jewish Christians within Jerusalem. For the Jewish Christians were zealous for the law. You see that in chapter 21, verse 20. They were zealous for the law. That is, by becoming Christian, the Jews became more Jewish. And the Jewish Christian leaders were noted for their integrity. And so the Jewish Christianity was an accepted part of Jerusalem Judaism. There were Christian Jews, Sadducee Jews, Pharisee Jews. It was just one of the parties within Judaism and was by this time accepted. Two years later, James, the leader of the Jewish Christian community at the time, James was executed by the high priest, a man called Ananus. Ananus had been appointed by, by King Herod Agrippa as high priest and the Roman official went away and a new Roman official hadn't arrived and so Ananus, who was a Sadducee, took the opportunity of executing James. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about it in these words. Now remember, this is a Jew, not a, not a Christian, who's writing. Those of the inhabitants of the city who were considered the most fair-minded and who were strict in observance of the law were offended at this, 
at the killing of James. They therefore sent uh, to King Agrippa, urging him to order Ananus to desist from any further such action. King Agrippa, because of Ananus's action, deposed him from the high priesthood which he'd only held for a few months. You see, the, the Jewish Christians had reached such a state within the Jewish community that the killing of their, the assassination of their leader could lead the king to remove the high priest who had led him to it. They were, all the fair-minded and noble Jews saw that that was unjust, that was wrong. My father's a fair-minded man and I asked him what he thought of the state of origin last night and he said Queensland were cheated. But I'm glad we won. You can be fair-minded in the opposition, you see, and they could see that James did not deserve this. Now you see here the shift that has taken place. Christianity by chapter 22 of Acts was accepted. I'll show it to you in this passage. Verse 8, Paul is talking about his experience on the road to Damascus. And the voice comes and he says, Who are you, Lord? And the voice replies, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Twenty years ago, that would have been the end of a speech. Twenty years ago, if he had said that Jesus whom you killed spoke to me on the road to Damascus, they would have started persecuting him immediately. But now, Jewish Christians were known. They were accepted. They were reasonable. I've got one living next door to me. There's another one over the back fence. And my third cousin's one as well. They're okay. Now that didn't matter. There was no offence in verse 19 at talking about Stephen as being your martyr. He's not saying the Christian's martyr, he was talking about the Jerusalem's martyr. The only time you come to offence is verse 21 when he talks about the Gentiles. Then the offence comes. Now today, friends, 1990, today, Jewish Christians are a major offence to the Jews. They are a threat to the Jews. The Jews hate hearing about people who are Jewish Christians. They refuse the information. They won't acknowledge that it can happen. I've got friends whose parents put death notices in the newspaper when they became Christians because they said, my daughter is no longer my daughter. She's dead. She used to be my daughter, but she died. How? She didn't die. She's standing next to me. She'd become a Christian. You see, a Jewish Christian is a terrible threat to Judaism in 20th century Sydney. That's the character. A few years ago we had a group of Jewish evangelists coming here uh, to preach and I've never had such pressure from me, applied to me, to stop someone coming onto our campus. They actually, in this, in this room, and gave a lecture about Jesus Christ. American Jews had become Christians. And you should have seen the hoo-ha the Jewish community went on about to stop them from appearing on this campus. Jewish Christians, it's a terrible threat. But in the first century Jerusalem, that wasn't the threat. First century Jerusalem, Gentile Christians were the threat. That was the difficulty for them. For when Paul mentions the Lord sending into the Gentiles, you see the reaction. Because that was the unacceptable thing to Judaism. You see, a Jew didn't mind if a Gentile became a Jew. I mean, that just showed respect for Judaism. It showed the superiority of Judaism. A Jew didn't mind if a Gentile became a Jew and then became a Jewish Christian. That also showed respect for Judaism. It also showed the superiority of Judaism. But Paul was preaching Gentiles becoming Christians without becoming Jews. Gentiles coming to the very presence of God without being circumcised, without going to the temple, without fulfilling the laws of Moses. And Paul therefore was making Judaism superfluous because he was superseding Judaism. 
And so the whole question of why be a Jew was being raised by the preaching of the gospel. And so Luke consistently is working out this theory, right back from, Acts, from Luke 4 in, in his gospel writing. When Jesus first appears, he appears to have a fight over the subject of Gentiles. You'll find it in Luke 4. Stephen saw the implications of the whole world, not the temple, being the centre of God's activity. And Paul sees the same. But what changed Paul? What led to the reversal that this man who went out to destroy came back as a Christian? See, Paul was part of that original Jewish hostility to Jesus. Paul saw the threat of Jesus to the Jewish way of life. He'd seen it as a threat to his kind of Judaism. And so he did what people do, they destroy, and that's what he did. But he changed his mind. He went to kill Christians and returned preaching Christianity. Why? Well, his answer, which is recorded for us here in verse 6 following, is that he met Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. Jesus whom Paul was persecuting. Jesus the dead Nazarene. And that perception of Jesus alive changed everything because Jesus was not the false Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah, the righteous one, as he called him in verse 14. Jesus was not the name to destroy. Jesus was the name to bear by which you're forgiven, verse 16. Jesus was not the person to exterminate. Jesus was the person to bear witness to, verse 15. The whole of life is changed. Nothing is the same. For nowhere can you make a bigger mistake than to try and kill the man who is your God and judge. So Paul comes back to Jerusalem, just like the Lord Jesus went to Jerusalem. And they wouldn't listen to him just as they wouldn't listen to the Lord Jesus. But just as Jesus told them, they wouldn't either. But here's the key to the change, to the great reversal. It's Jesus and who is he? For today, people still change. In the swimming pool down here on the campus in the last year, I've baptised Buddhist, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, and Australians of all kinds of varieties of Anglicans, Presbyterians, atheists. I've even baptised a Baptist. People have changed. People have gone public in their change, and the reason is always the same. Because of Jesus. For they have seen who Jesus is, and that has changed their life. And changing their life has opened up to them the possibility of being persecuted like it never was before. However, for most Australians, Christianity is never something to destroy because it is never something that really attacks them. It's acceptable, you see. Acceptable because they don't see the implications of the gospel for their self-centred materialistic culture and family and lifestyle and choices. For Christianity is part of our culture Christianity is often not genuine because we Christians do not preach it properly. We just tend to live like good Australians, just like everybody else, chasing our degrees and our cars, our careers, our overseas trips, our marriage, our 1.9 kids and our three-bedroom mortgage. We're just like everybody else, only we keep our mouth shut about that private fetish we have in believing in Jesus. And so our culture does not know that being a Christian actually changes everything. But if we proclaim Christ, if we make the message and the implications clear, then we will be condemning the idolatrous culture of greed and lies and materialism, of political corruption and pagan animal ways, of our hedonistic superficiality and of our family God. We'll be changing people. And if we do that, if we make Jesus really clear, then we can expect to be persecuted. So that is one of the four options that we see for people. 
and we can also expect to see people change. Let's pray. We thank and praise your Heavenly Father for your Son. We thank you that you made yourself clear in him. We do pray that you would help us to bear witness to him faithfully and make him clear to our own contemporaries that they might be threatened by him and change to acknowledge his lordship. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.